Welcome back to Scorytime, an under-the-hood look at film scores, aiming to go deeper than anyone has gone before, musically, technically and historically. We're currently looking at Bond scores, but we will be going on to other scores in the future. But today, we're going to be concentrating on the one and the only James Bond theme, and in particular, this episode is going to be looking at the orchestration and composition of said theme. Before we start properly, a quick promotion to say please do come and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and leave us comments, do leave us reviews and do subscribe to make sure you don't miss out future episodes. And we really do want to get your feedback, you know a lot of work is going into these, it's great to hear from you, send through your questions and uh, we'll hopefully get a bit of chat going on Facebook and some extra bits and pieces and I'll be talking a bit more about that later on. But let me first of all mention that there are just the two of us today we're flying solo myself and jason as we're very much looking at the musical side of things so uh say hi jason hi well i'm really looking forward to this today because we we've, we've got some sort of pre-show notes that we were sharing today and uh yeah there's some really good stuff in here that i think people are going to really enjoy yes i completely agree even though people talk about the uh, James Bond theme a lot because of its iconic, you know, position in the world of film music and character theme music and pop music and everything else, there's a lot that doesn't often get said about it, really. But for now, mm. I tell you what, let's turn our attention to the arrangement and the orchestration, and in particular, yeah. let's start with a bit of the orchestration because one of the things that I want to clear up as much as we can is what the actual lineup is because basically the description that's used I mean nobody actually has a list of that original James Bond theme that's recorded for the film with a sort of lineup of who was on it apart from we know that Vic Flick was on it and we know it was the John Barry 7 or the John Barry 7 plus you know plus <laughs> musicians um, because it was a lot bigger than that but it, it's described basically as, as a, what I would call the classic big band lineup which is five saxes nine brass and rhythm section but there's definitely a little bit probably a little bit more to it than that because i mean for for a start off what the brass actually breaks down as because i think it, and you have to really listen to the single version to really confirm this but i think there's at least one possibly two french horns in there mm-hmm. as you can hear I... on the middle section <laughs> Yeah, one of the great things about pop music lasting so long that we're starting to experience now is that uh, people are often going back to, uh, you can hear this with pop groups like the Kinks and the Beatles and the Bee Gees, even in the 60s, where uh, people are going back and getting the mono mixes of their album and reissuing them for people. And when you look at different mixes of things or different recordings of things, even if they're done in and around the same time, you hear different things. You know, sometimes the way things fold in one mix will hide something that comes out in another. Yeah. And so the the idea that we have the single version, which was recorded weeks after the film version, whatever you like to call it, is really worth looking at and to see differences or to yes. see if you can hear something you can't. And you're right. In the single version, there is something that sounds very French horn-like in the uh, sort of bebop section in the middle. Even It could even be one. 
you, you can't really tell. No. But it's uh, it's a stereo recording, isn't it? So the spread is wider, and you can hear things that you can't hear on the uh, in the film version. Well, the the second one, the single version, is it's a weird sort of sound to me in terms of the stereo image because there's a lot of things that are panned hard left and a lot of things that are panned hard right and some things that are across both and yeah. i've actually i've got a version of the single that i put into my software and i've taken the left hand channel and the right hand channel and separated them out and panned mm. them centrally and i thought what i might do for the for i'll play the full thing here we don't play too much in full but i'm gonna just play you the single version now and i'm gonna switch between the original version the release version as it is and then my uh repanned version and so the version where you can hear your guitar in your left ear listeners that is the original mix that was released on single when you hear it all kind of a bit more central um that's where i'm sort of switching you over to this this sort of more centralized mix and i thought it was quite interesting um, in particular, because all the reverb is panned over to the left, which makes it a really weird sound because you've got all the a lot of brass on the right hand side, but their mm-hmm. reverb, so their echo, the brass's echo is in the left. Very, very strange. Let's have a listen to that now, and I'll switch between the two throughout so you can hear the differences. I just thought it was interesting. So this is the original pan, and this is mine in the center. So here's the original. comes the switch to my sort of remix. So yeah, this is the original version where everything's panned hard left and hard right. But in my sort of remixed version I've done just for this experiment, I've brought the two to the middle and it just sounds a lot thicker. Here's the switch back to my... It's just intriguing. I think it's why I prefer the original version to this one, because in this one with the reverb panned over to one side and guitar over to one side and the brass all over to the other side, it's just peculiar. Just I actually prefer it when I actually found if I brought the two sides together in the middle and you get that thicker mono sound of everything in the middle. It just sounds better to me. It sounds more like the original film version anyway. And what I'll do is 
if you enjoyed that on Facebook, if you come onto our Facebook page, I'll leave a little link and I'll leave you that single version with just the left channel pan centrally and just the right channel pan centrally and then also the mix with both of them because it's very interesting to listen through because you can pick up things a bit more isolated you know the left hand channel is really just a bit of brass all the guitar and a little bit of drums whereas the right hand channel has a lot of the brass but no guitar and no, none of the reverb so it's just a very very different sort of uh, mix to it but listening to that single version as you were saying you can pick out a lot of things that that i don't think that you really do pick up in the original version and yet the orchestration is one thing that i think actually clears a few things up uh, firstly, that that French horn, which is there. Secondly, it's interesting to hear a bit more about where the saxes are, because for years I couldn't really work out what the saxes were doing. There are five of them <laughs> there, but actually they're they're obviously playing in, particularly here them actually in in the what I would call the tag at the end of the middle section. The ba da ba da da da. Exactly. Yeah. You can really hear the saxes there, uh, but also I think the saxes are playing all the way through the 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 vamp. The da da dee da, but very low very low in the mix a little bit at the end of the the sort of the coda i would call it the bada 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 there's a bit of saxes again mixed in there but it the saxes are quite low across the board in the mix it's sort of hard to to pick them up another element of the james bond theme orchestration that is really prominent in both mixes is the vibraphone exactly yeah the vibraphone is the sort of it's the keyboard you know, it's the it's the ethereal yes. thing that's in the background, kind of pushing the harmony throughout the the whole song. Yeah, because normally in a, in a big band lineup, it'd be more very common, in fact, to have piano. The vibraphone maybe is the substitution for the piano, as you say. So that that's an interesting aspect. And then there's definitely another percussionist as well, because we get the great big tam tam. Yeah, uh, which is a much better sound in the original first version than in the second one where they've got definitely got a smaller tam tam on that on that session and it just doesn't have the same gravitas of that first one and and it doesn't i don't think it gets the whack that the first one gets and it just no no you're right and and actually that's one of the things that uh pop fans want to get the mono mixes of recordings for is that a lot of times the mono mixes are just generally punchier for the thing that you were just talking about when you pan things left and right suddenly you don't have the same sort of direct force of all the sound and you have to do things like say what side is the reverb going to be on sometimes you amp up the reverb because you need to fill the space in a way that is filled when something is mono when everything mm. is right in the center and so things like the tam tam which is actually i agree with you i think it's probably a smaller one but you know those sections are going to be a lot more punchy if yeah. you had to compare the two versions you'd say that the first one had a lot more drive and punch than the definitely. second one wouldn't you yeah, yeah absolutely yeah i mean john barry's definitely said you know the the second one they put out well, i mean i forget the exact words he used but you know like tons or something along those lines you know absolute tons of reverb on it i don't like that actually on on the second one in, in comparison to the first one i think it just it loses some of the immediacy of the first one which makes it all just more urgent and uh, what was the word you used what punchy punch well yeah it's more much more punchy yeah the first Nothing, one yeah 
when you, you mm. put that reverb in, it just puts a bit more of a wash over everything. And not to confuse the issue, a few years after this, in the mid-60s, John Barry re-recorded a bunch of his music for CBS, came out on a series of uh, records, and he re-recorded the James Bond theme with bongos. Yes. Much, uh, and strings. Much, and strings, and much closer to the... Uh, vibe that you get now when people do the James Bond yeah. theme. The bongos are always pretty prominent and I think it comes from that one. And there's a little piano solo at the end so it was like a different arrangement but the same basic song and it's got less reverb on it. They've definitely dialed it back yes. and it's like a punchier version in mid-60s stereo recording technology. Yes I know the version you're talking about um, and I was going to, I was already going to drop it in actually on, on uh, so we'll put it we will play some of that as well the CBS recording from it's about 1967 I was looking at today so mm. sort of five years afterwards and it's got less reverb than the original one but sorry less reverb than the single one but more reverb than the uh, the first one so it's yeah. it's kind of a bit of a hybrid of, of the two but then has a lot more instruments in there it's obviously you know done with the full orchestra for that for that one but as you say I mean that's the one that David Arnold um, I think he seems to to me to have used that 1967 version, much more of the basis of his version of the James Bond theme for Casino Royale in particular than, than the sort of the first one. But one of the other things that I wanted to, to just talk about on an orchestration point of view that is a, is a bit of a, um, a mistake, I think, when people play or cover, you, you hear performances of that original version, is that the guitar chord at the end is a solo guitar the sort of very famous you know the James Bond chord at the end and the reason that that I know for for one thing I know that it's not just guitar is that successive guitarists have told me it's not possible to play that chord with the low E as it sounds on the record so that there's a bass player playing an E on it so for many years, I, I and I'd not read, I hadn't really listened closely enough to the single version because it's not my, not I don't enjoy it anywhere near as much as the other version. When I was kind of researching, you know, these various podcasts and stuff, I, I was went back and I was listening to single version as comparison, and I realised that the single version, the last chord, has got vibraphones on it. Yes, it's mm-hmm. got a cymbal crash. It's got a bass note and the guitar chord. And then when you know that and you, you you know for definite from that single version, it's almost like reverse engineering the original version because then you can go back and actually listen to it and you think, well, actually, now I know there's vibraphones, I can hear it because the vibrato on that final chord, the wow, 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 is actually the vibraphone motors, not the guitar. Over a guitar that's being played straight, yeah. Exactly. And now a lot of people, when they do, I've heard guitarists do that, they try and put sort of vibrato onto that chord because they've, they're have they listening to this old 60-year-old recording and thinking, oh, there's vibrato on it. But there's not. It's the vibraphone. And exactly. the thing is, the vibrato in those days as well was quite hard to control on guitar, wasn't it? It was. And, and vibrato in general is something that it spins. You get a crest and you get a, a node, I guess it is. You know, So to have vibrato at the same time as that guitar chord being played on that nickel-wound strings. And you can really hear that that guitar, he just nails that last chord. Yeah. And so you couldn't really have a combination of nailing that last chord and having all that attack 
and being guaranteed to be at the beginning of the vibrato, that, that would then give you the vibrato effect that you wanted. So, yeah, you, you kind of have to have one or the other. You have to have a, a vibrato guitar that sort of harps in like a harp gliss, or you, have a, you nail it. You can't really have it. Both. Oh, it's interesting, you know. As I say, lots of lots of things that are very hard to pick out from that 1962 recording. You know, mics dotted around the room. You don't have everything close mic'd up like you do. It's 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 really tricky. There's a, there's another little bit actually that I've always wondered about. That I want to share with you that that I think really gets missed off on a lot of people's awareness of it, and also certainly covers of it in the middle section of the James Bond theme. You know, you've got the trumpets going in, you know, or the or the horns as well, with them with the tune ba da biddy ba da da, and then you've got the trombones that answer. They go ba ba da da, but then, as well as the bass line that just sort of does a bit of a walking bass, there's other bass brass instruments in there that have like another counter melody going on, and right. it's it's very very hard to pick out, and it's I don't think it's so much there either in the single version. Let me just play a little bit to you here um, so you can hear it and then we'll talk a bit more about it. Okay, so that's the original. Here it is with me clonking along on the piano. Just have a listen to that line isolated. Now have a listen to the original again and see if you can pick it out. Just to clarify, it isn't the bass guitar. The bass guitar is doing like a walking bass. The doom, 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 you know, it's something different. This is something else in the mix that nobody ever plays, but now you know you can hear it, try and have a listen for it. It's definitely there. So we stopped recording to listen to that and <laughs> for, for me to get my point validated that it's brass, low brass instrument. And Jason went, ah, no, it's guitar. And I was like, no, I was, you're damn right. It is, it's guitar. And it, yeah, so there we go. We've just discovered something there. And it's very hard to pick it out in the recording, but it's like a down, 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 down. And it's a completely separate line to all the kind of the classic lines that we all know you've got the walking bass which is a string bass which you don't hear so well on this recording but it's there and it's definitely there on the single version there's also the trumpet line we know and we we all that's the that's the actual the, the melody there's the counter melody of the trombones you've got all the drums going on but in the mix of it all there's like a guitar line that nobody ever plays and it's yet yeah, it's, it's sort of like it's sort of like a low end guitar sound just sort of on the, on the sort of bass end of the chord, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, as we were surmising, a lot of times in recordings back then, they were all mixed on the fly. So you would have had the sound of the channel of the microphone in front of Mr. Flick's amp. And then you'd have the sound of the room. And so it's possible that he was playing that and his channel was turned down for the middle section yeah. and turned up for his solo sections. So that was the sound of him playing, you know, going into the brass mics or going into the overheads or whatever. So that's why it's it's buried like that and so kind of atmospheric and uh, and hard to see. Well, and why it gets missed off by people because, yeah. I mean, I must have listened to that, you know, how many thousand times, played it probably as many, but, it, you know, here we are. We've just two musical ears and mm-hmm. we, we really picked it out, but it's, it's a tough one to pick out there. So it, I have a feeling that the world's best James Bond band <laughs> might be incorporating said idea into some of their arrangements in the future. Well, I see it. it's like edition 28 of my James Bond theme array or arrangement transcription, I should say, not arrangement. But, you know, it's it's amazing. You, you keep hearing stuff the more you listen. These early recordings, they're just really tough to pick every single detail, yeah. you know, and you, you, yeah. you can listen to them. 2000 times and still hear new things and and mm-hmm. actually after a while years play tricks on you and you start to hear things that aren't there sometimes but that's definitely there that's i mean i've always yeah. been i've always thought it was a tuba or something but but the minute you said no it's a guitar and listen to it again i was like yeah you're mm. absolutely spot on uh that is what it is but well so- as, it, as it was nicely uh described to me once recordings in the early part of the century and through the 60s they weren't recording musicians they were recording air they were recording the air of all the sound so you were hearing everybody all at once whereas now you Mm. record musicians right you have the bass is separate and the drums are separate and the vocals are separate and everything is separate so you can kind of go back and tweak all the things you need to tweak but back then the sound was going into the air and making this other Mm. entity and you were recording that so that's why stuff becomes mysterious and impossible to pick out sometimes it's also why it's impossible to recreate it you know i mean it's Mm -hmm. it's not the musicians aren't as good i hear people say oh they can't play like that now you know it's just that you're never going to sound like that because recording budgets and time for recording is so much more economical now that you can go in and you can go and patch in bars and stuff like that it's just not economical to record things the way they used to. Plus, just don't get a clean enough sound anymore in terms of the actual finished product. You you wouldn't get away with having all the noise that you get from just recording something in a room like that and releasing it commercially. Unfortunately, because I love the sound of those early James Bond recordings. You know, one of my favourites is Goldfinger, and I always sort of talk about that that soundtrack. Like, it's literally trying to burst out of the record there's so much energy and there's no or there's not the compression that we get nowadays where the sound is being squashed but back in those days it's it's, it's almost distorting with how lively mm-hmm. it is and you just you just don't get that anymore and that, that that's that's just the way it is you know no it's true and also so much music now it's needed to be adaptable you know you yeah. hear music but you also are going to hear several mixes you'll hear yeah. several versions and remixes if something appears in synchronized to other media like film or television or adverts or something then certain parts have to be able to be extended or stripped yeah. away or lo- and that would be impossible with these lovely one or two track recordings that we uh we used to have have were so endearing yeah 
but but yeah, they, they weren't meant for that. You literally would have to cut the tape at some point in the performance. The other thing I wanted to mention was the stab section at the end of the middle high bebop section, the swing part of the of the tune. This is one of the things that's sort of evolved and been adapted many times over the years and just little tweaks to it. And John Barry himself has made little, little tweaks to it over the years. And the original version that was used in the Doctor No film, it very much sounds, when you listen to that recording, that the that line stays the same all the way through. There's no movement within it. But then when you hear later versions, I mean... Really, when you get into the Roger Moore era, you get a very much a moving part. You get a sort of descending line going all the way down through that, usually on the French horns. But then if we roll back a little bit more to, say, the gun barrel in Goldfinger, you hear that there's already some movement within it, 100%. So it always kind of makes me think, is that something that changed from the original version or was it just there and we couldn't really hear it? Well, let's reference the single version recorded a few weeks later and you can definitely hear that there is movement in that version just four weeks after the film version was recorded. Now, admittedly, it's subtle, it's hard to hear it, but it's there on that right-hand side. You've got to really listen for it. Now, look, one has to acknowledge that there are some very subtle changes between these two versions that are just four weeks apart. For example, in the original version, the trombones leading into the middle section don't do like a little fall-off. But, but, but on the original and then on the four the single version four weeks later but 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 bow there's a difference there so there are some subtle little differences so this could be a difference but I sort of think once you know that it's definitely there, a little bit like some of the other things that we talk about, once you know it's there, does that original have it? And is it just the mic placement that means that you can't quite hear the movement? I'm not sure. I think it's there. I just think it's very, very hard to hear it. If it's not there, if there's no movement, this is literally the only version that John Barry ever did. Well, it is the only version that John Barry ever did where there's no movement. Now, other composers came along and did it without movement. Bill Conti, of course. And then later on, you know, you could say Thomas Newman as well in Skyfall. Though, to be fair, Thomas Newman does put that movement back in for Spectre for the start. But I think with like Bill Conti, for example, and I think the millions of cover versions out there where there's no movement, 
I think that they've just taken the original version and just think that that's the one, that there's no movement. But I actually believe there is movement in there, that it's just very hard to hear it. But even if you say that there isn't, then every other subsequent version by John Barry definitely does have that movement and various versions of it, whether it's the simpler version or the extended version. So I don't know what's authentic. I think it's there. I just think we can't hear it. But I'll leave it up to you to decide. What do you all think? Uh, Come and let us know on Facebook in the comments or on Twitter. Give us a shout out. What do you think? Is the movement on the original there or is it not? So one of the things that I wanted to really cover in this episode is the often quoted sort of technical specification of what Vic Plick Vic Plick Vic Flick <laughs> played the uh, the theme on. And even the master of James Bond music, John Burlingham, writes this Surprisingly, Vic did not play the Bond theme on electric guitar. Instead, he played it on a Clifford Essex Paragon Deluxe acoustic guitar with a de-armoured pickup. As he explained, gripped by its supporting plates to the strings behind the bridge and held away from the body of the guitar by a carefully folded senior service cigarette packet. He used a Vox 15 amplifier, which the John Barry 7 had been routinely using at the time. Adding to the unique sound, Flick uh, Flick said, some of my guitar sound was picked up on the many open microphones placed around the studio for the other musicians. This gave a room effect that added to the general ambience. Now, that particularly the bit that that says he played it on the Clifford Essex Paragon Deluxe acoustic guitar with a de-armoured pickup is something that is often quoted in articles when referring to the James Bond theme. And unless you're an absolute guitar geek, and I'm not, absolutely not, it means absolutely nothing to any of us. And I thought it'd be fun to actually break down the various elements that uh, have contributed to one of the most iconic guitar sounds of all time. And to help us with this, I've enlisted uh, a very good friend of mine. And for those of you that know Cue the Music or followed Cue the Music, you'll know this gentleman. His name is Steve Down, and he was the guitarist on our uh, show in, that we did in uh, Piz Gloria for the Onomatopoeia Secret Service 50th anniversary. And he's also the fantastic guitarist on our jazz album that we re- released earlier this year. And in his uh, any of his other time when he's not working with Q the Music, he is a lecturer of jazz, improvisation and university and can be found on tour with Joss Stone. So, big intro there, but welcome uh, along, Steve, and thanks very much for helping us out with this one. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Hi, guys. So let's break things down a little bit because... Obviously, there's a lot to, to sort of uh, to, to cover in this, actually. Um, let's start from the start with the... I mean, first of all, it says he doesn't didn't play it on electric guitar. He played it on acoustic guitar. Is that absolutely true? It's not quite an acoustic guitar as we know it. Or, or gen, you know, general Joe Bloggs would think of an acoustic guitar as something quite different to what he played it on. Yeah, so, I mean, the, when you say acoustic, I mean, it's a very broad term. You know, you would say a violin or a cello is an acoustic instrument. It, when generally, when you say acoustic guitar today, people will think of you know like a, a Gibson Hummingbird or a Martin or something like that, which you know people like Sheryl Crow or Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift play that kind of acoustic guitar. But that yeah. that wasn't the kind of acoustic guitar that Vic played on. Um, what he actually played on was what would commonly be termed today in the guitar community, if you're a geek, as an archtop. 
So what that means is basically that the guitar itself looks like it's solid, but it's got F holes either side, just just like a violin or a, or a cello um, has F holes. Um, F, but the middle hole part... meaning it's shaped like an F. I'm just so that for yes. anyone who doesn't yeah, yeah. know, because <laughs> I even yeah. I thought I was like F hole, and then of course yeah, obviously an F hole, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the F hole, it, yeah, it looks it looks like um you know like an italic F, yeah, essentially, and you get one on either side usually on an arch top, and that's your kind of like your jazz box guitar. So that would be a guitar that like Charlie Christian or George Benson, Wes Montgomery, all of those kind of jazz stars would play. And funnily enough, actually, people kind of today are still actually starting to reuse them. People like James Bay, you know, uses a kind of a, a guitar that's got F holes in it as well. But it, essentially, it doesn't have a solid body. It's it's hollow inside, just like an acoustic guitar, but it does have a mostly closed top. Right. So there's no big hole in the middle like you would have on an acoustic guitar. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing that lots of jazz guitarists would play. I, I think, I believe he bought it. I think it was either 1953 or 57, I think he bought it, which would make it kind of, you know, quite an early one, um, an early uh, arch top. And, you know, guitars had only started being electrified. By that, I mean having pickups put on them and plugged into speakers Mm -hmm. in the late 40s. So, you know, we're not talking, you know, like it's not been a long time since guitars have been kind of, you know, heard like that. So the fact that he put a pickup on it you know, that was perfectly normal for that kind of time. That's what guys in like, you know, Elvis Presley's band and Bill Haley and the Comets were doing. Yeah. So but when you say he put, uh, put a pick, pick up on it, what does that what does that mean exactly to, to a layman? I mean, how does that work in terms of, you know, the uh, setup of it? Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, like so, solid body guitars like the, the guitar that I mean, you, I mean, you guys can see it, but the people listening can't see it. <laughs> um, but the, the guitar that I'm holding, the Telecaster, the one that I've got is a 57 so this kind of guitar where it's a solid body and it's the classic electric guitar that, you know, you'd see Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones playing that that was invented slightly before. But they just weren't that widely used. Right. And so the, the pickups in those guitars and like Keith Richards guitars and everything and all the Beatles, they were all built in. Yeah. The pickups built into the body, whereas with Vic's guitar, because he had an arch top guitar, it didn't have a built in pickup. So what he did was he bought a pickup you could buy pickups and you could still buy pickups today and literally just attach them onto the guitar so it'd be clamped on or stuck on some of them get stuck on or some of them get screwed on onto the guitar if you want them permanently i believe vic clamped it onto his guitar right and with the sound of it the the whole thing with the cigarette packet as far as (laughs) my research goes with it is that when you clamp it down it clamps it to the body of the guitar so that means it's quite far away from the strings and with the, the contour of the body of an arch top guitar, it does mean that the pickup's really far away from the body. So you don't get such an immediate sound that right. you that you would hear like on a normal electric guitar, like like I said, Keith Richards guitar. It's so immediate because the pickup's so close to the string. Yeah. So what he did, I believe, is that he put those cigarette packets or whatever it was underneath to lift it up to be closer to the strings. And that was quite a normal thing. He wasn't the only guitarist to have ever done that that wasn't unique just to him lots and lots of people were doing that with archtop guitars around that kind of time 
Yeah. Um, I love so, yeah. how they name the actual brand of the cigarette packet as well. Like if they used, yeah. like if they used a poorer <laughs> brand, it would affect the sound, you know? Yeah, yeah, it would have <laughs> sounded rubbish if it was like a lucky strike or something. Yeah, it always makes me <laughs> chuckle that. Oh, and then I suppose the other part is the amplifier itself, because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this isn't a particularly a powerful amplifier. I mean, when we think of amplifiers now for guitars, especially for, you know, most people, they think of like a massive, great big stack on stage on a touring mm. show. But in those mm. days, it really just to give the sound a bit more presence, isn't it? Yeah, so it was uh, an amplifier called a Vox AC15. So if you imagine all of the early Beatles stuff, they played through Vox amplifiers. Yeah. They were British-made amps. And they, yeah, Vox, Vox amplifiers, the Beatles played them. Brian May from Queen is quite famous for having a gigantic wall of Vox <laughs> amplifiers. Yeah. And uh, yeah, Vic had an AC15, which is a 15-watt. It that's, does sound like it's... nothing, is it? Isn't it? Well, you, you say that, but it, I mean, Vox guitar, Vox guitar amps are, they're notorious for being very glassy, very trebly. And if you're caught in front of one, it will take your face off. Really? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the amplifier that I've got in my room is uh, is a 12 watt, and that's fairly loud. Really? I can't have wow. that very. Yeah, because when you've got when it's a valve and it's a class A valve, rather than you know, if you have a 15 watt transistor uh, amplifier like we have, you know, like in you know school practice rooms and things like that, you yeah. know, the cheap ones you can get out of the Argos catalog and yeah. off Amazon, whatever. Those transistor amps, they're quite quiet for 15 watt. But when it's a valve, when you've got an EL34 and EL84 in there. It is very loud. The output is is quite loud. So you wouldn't want anything bigger than an AC15. And in fact, when I record with Joss, I use a Princeton, which is very similar to the Vox AC15. So I use right. a Fender Princeton, and that's quite small. It's a very small amplifier. It's probably I don't know, probably the you know the size of a you know a coffee table book. That one of wow. those kind of big books. You know, it's not it's not a very big amplifier. Wow. Um, yeah, but they are very trebly, and that's kind of what gave the sound. Yeah. For, for, for that particular thing where it is quite nasal sounding yeah it cuts through but, the band that's for sure yeah there's other variables as to why the guitar sounded the way it sounded on the recording and one of them is the fact that you know the where he played it on the guitar which you know is back towards the bridge of the guitar the bridge of the guitar is where the strings get fixed if you're right-handed then down towards the right of the guitar which Vic was so that's that's right down the bottom of the guitar and um it, it, by the bridge it sounds like this so it's that kind of sound there which kind of gives you that kind of surfery kind of sound whereas if i play by the neck which is up by the fretboard of the guitar then it sounds more rounded so you can hear the difference if i go back from the neck towards the bridge you can hear a, a distinct difference in the tonal quality and so it sounds far more nasal and far, far more like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's that by the bridge. Also, the strings that he used, um, he used nickel wound strings, as far as I can see from from some of the pictures. So, nickel wound strings are basically just steel strings that are wound around and around with nickel. Whereas other guitars, like the jet, normal kind of jazz strings, would be like chrome wound, and they'd be what's called flat wound, where all of the windings are so close together that it's actually really smooth. And so that gives you a far more mellow sound. So the strings, you know, were very, uh, you know, kind of quite tinny sounding. And yeah. he played by the bridge, you know, the amplifier, you know. And then there's other things as well that, you know, that, like, like the microphone that's being used and where that's placed and, 
you know other other kind of things that go on but i mean the majority of the thing is just you know where he played on the on the actual thing and the fact that the pickup was close as well so it's amazing because there's so many factors here but i don't think anybody's really recreated that sound to an absolute t of the original even vic flick himself in the other recordings i don't think he ever quite got that that absolute master stroke of sound that that happened on that very very first one in my opinion other people may feel differently about that but for me the definitive thick uh, flick performance is that very first one that was used in the film yeah I, I yeah i completely agree i mean some of that is you know the studio as well because i think they used the cts studio yeah. i think yeah. um, for that one whereas i don't know whether they recorded the later ones there i don't yeah, know whether no. they're all yeah, the yeah. single version a few weeks later was recorded at Abbey Road. Yeah, I mean, you know, speaking about Abbey Road, you can tell when a band's recorded in somewhere different, like, you know, all of the early Beatles stuff is all recorded in Abbey Road Studio 2, and then the White Album, some of that is recorded in Trident, Yeah, you know, which is elsewhere in London. You can hear the difference in sound, Yeah, and that, that will affect it yeah. where the yeah. guitar is placed. So, and it's um, mono, too, the first one. Yeah. yeah and so when that, something's mono, the sound will be different yeah yeah exactly yeah and you know i think uh, we've talked before i think Warren, about the the pitch as well yeah um of it in the fact that on the record it's somewhere between e and f yeah and it is re- definitely recorded in e you can hear that by the fact that it's an open string yeah so it's it's that open string rather than you know yeah, like that's yeah. that sounds completely different it, i'll you, tell you a funny you... funny story i got i had a, a battle on wikipedia because on on the james <laughs> bond theme page someone you know because you know on wikipedia anyone can go and edit it and there's you know it's a decent uh, uh, page on the james bond theme but somebody put mm. it down there it's the key in the key of f so i went and edited it and said it's in the key of e and we went through this process for about a week where the other guy, whoever the other guy was, just kept going on and turning it back to F. And I was like, I was adamant. I was not going to let this go because I know it's in E. And in the end, another moderator or someone had come in and just taken out all reference to the key. And to this day, there's no reference to the key. But in the the sort of moderating notes, it tells you the editing. Uh, they they mm. put something in there about, you know, I'm just removing it. <laughs> but you know it's, it is it is in e but you're right i mean some people do seem to think it's in f but it's it is one of those weird things where in back in those days certain recordings did slot between two keys which by the yes. way and jason you probably have found a lot of this as well and and yourself steve when you're trying yeah. to work things out and transcribe them and stuff enough make it a lot harder when it doesn't actually slot into one key it sort of sits between the two yeah, well, the really famous one with that one is Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Yeah, Because yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone thinks it's in E. And, I mean, it probably was probably was recorded in E, but what they use is a vary speed and they slow it down. Mm. And the reason why they do that is because it makes the record sound fatter. So it makes it sound kind of wider and thicker. And, you know, for obviously for that kind of, you know, soul R&B funk sound, you know, they wanted it to sound like that. So mm. that was like a studio trick. The Beatles used that. Rolling Stones used that. And, you know, it's quite possible that to make it, I mean, this is me speculating here, I don't know this for sure, but, you know, to make it sound tinny, they might well have sped it up Mm. ever so slightly. That could have been reason why it's somewhere between E and F, because, you know, it sounded, you know, it made the guitar or the brass sound you know that exactly how they wanted it to sound edgier and and stuff as well and 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 also giving it just that little bit of speed even if it's just in uh, speeding up by one bpm or something over the whole track or even a couple 
you know yeah. that that can just make such a difference to the feel uh, you know yeah. I've, I've got into arguments with musicians about this i mean i, m- I remember i was doing actually <laughs> doing a uh, a herb output tribute a slightly off topic here but we were playing things with a with a click and then we tried it without a click track and we got to the end of the track and i said yeah guys it's it's sped up by about four bpm now if anyone doesn't know four bpm that is nothing but I yeah. could tell it had, and we got the click track out, and sure enough, I was right, it had sped up by about 4 BPM, and a couple of the guys in the band were sort of laughing that, that I'd sort of made, making a fuss about it, but I was like, <laughs> hey, I noticed it, so who's the fool here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but but no, I mean, tempo is, is so key, and the James Bond theme, you, you know, it, it's, I think for me, one of the big factors in it is that tempo. It, it's got urgency in the guitar theme, and in the middle section, mm-hmm. the same tempo doesn't change, but the middle section works really well with the backbeat that actually feels like it's playing behind that beat. So, you know the tempo mm-hmm. is key to this to this so yeah i mean maybe that little difference in speeding up the record just just gives it a bit more edginess yeah yeah quite possibly i think so yeah it kind of gives that urgency doesn't it yeah Which, you know go, goes along with the subject matter doesn't it so yeah absolutely i wonder the question i wanted to ask you as well about the actual difficulty of playing that particular thing oh, yeah. because on the sort of face of it it seems like quite a simple thing to play on guitar but I don't know. I've never had to play on guitar, so you can tell me. But I think it's actually a lot <laughs> trickier than it seems because, in particular, the split notes, the dum da dum. I've heard so many guitarists and top top mm. guitarists, and even bless him, Vic Flick. When I've heard him do it on a on YouTube and stuff, you can hear him stumbling a little bit on it because you've got to move that pick pretty rapidly for those, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. The, it's what we call alternate picking, where you're picking down and then up. So your your first pick stroke is a down and then up, and you have to do that when you're playing quite quick yeah. rhythms like what you're playing with that da 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 that that bit there you know that that's the the quick rhythm what you know musicians would call semiquavers there yeah and that there you can very if you haven't got your picking sorted out then you know as to which direction you're going to play in which yeah. one you're going to start with you can very very easily trip over it yeah. and it's really weird because this is the tune that you know you guitar teachers teach to your primary school kids as the first tune that, really? that you learn and and it is actually quite tricky to play and it, and it is one of those kind of weird psychological things with guitarists where you know the simplest things yeah you you end up screwing up yeah um, and and this theme is one of them you know and, and, and I, I think that's at that point as well with with it it's only there are only two such small notes but mm. in any other tune you probably would get away with one of them not quite speaking but in this one if you don't have yeah. every single note of dam da da dam dam every yeah. single person in the room notices that one of those is missing you know it's one of oh, those yeah yeah it? yeah totally and, and you know it is just it, it's to do with the guitar as well i mean it would be if i was playing it on the the clifford essex paragon I, man it would be really difficult to to mm. wield that thing it would be like you know trying to play with a tank because <laughs> the thing is huge and like the just the you know the thickness of the strings that are on there and everything yeah. And, you know, how high the strings are off of the fretboard and everything, which is why I play it on the Telecaster that I play it on. Yeah. And, and I'm just very careful with the settings of it. But it, when you play back towards the bridge, the strings, are they don't give as much. So you can you can hear everything for a start. So if you make a mistake, you can hear it. And secondly, yeah. it's very difficult to get the string to sound loudly when you play back towards the bridge because of the fact that the strings don't they haven't got as much elastic 
right. you know, when you're when you're right there. So yeah. it's really difficult to do that. And then you know, like that little bit at the end, the you know, you're you're string skipping, you're jumping across strings right. as well. Yeah. So that's that's also a difficulty as well. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you know, it's a lot of kind of. It's a little bit like that, you know, that scene in Indiana Jones, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the, the opening of Last Crusade, isn't yeah. it, I think, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's so many pitfalls that you can, you know, like screw up and you're the, you know, you're the main part in that tune. You screw that up at the beginning of the gig and, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, you have to say, I mean, just finishing up here, I, I mean, all power to uh, and all praise to Vic Flick because, the, yeah. these days back in those days it was one take all the way through it's not like now where you just drop in fix a bar and drop out again uh you know you can do literally anything to fix something like that but back in those days it was complete takes all the way through and, and pick the best one and you know that, that i think it i think it shows he was right at the top of his game in that that 60s period yeah yeah definitely and, and from the stories that you know you read that he kind of talks about with the how the actual thing was it was quite uh you know, quite a rushed yeah. um, session. Yeah. And, you know, so for him to be able to communicate with the conductor, you know, and composer, you know, I don't, I don't know who was there actually, um, but whoever was there was communicating with him for him to be able to kind of go, right, that's what you want. I'm going to put this, you know, down now. And, you know, whilst you're under the, you know, the kind of the heading of time is money, which yeah. they all were in those yeah. days. So, yeah, it, absolutely amazing that he got that sound really really quickly within that session yeah so. i i'll just tell you actually interesting i know this he obviously john barry was the main person involved and he did actually have a meeting a couple of days before putting it down where he went over to john barry's flat basically to oh pick did up. he yeah yeah oh okay um, and that's where he found out what he was gonna do but but i mean obviously for him it was just another session he didn't know he was recording this iconic james bond theme it was just a our theme you know he didn't know what it was going to be but yeah i mean that's one of the things we know from his notes and stuff in the court case and his diaries and stuff that he he popped over to john barry's to pick up the music i think and so yeah Uh, but um but there we go look steve thank you so much for your time uh really interesting insight and yeah thank you yeah no worries my pleasure well that was really interesting talking to steve now I want to move on to the vamp, the, the sort of famous semitone, the vamp yes. that we know was John Barry's contribution to the James Bond theme. Without any doubt, you know, that was the case. But this is not something that can be attributed to John Barry in terms of the idea and the composition of it. It's his use of it, obviously, but it's it's something that has appeared in a, a number of places over the years. And that sort of really famous four-note semitone vamp. I was thinking about this podcast in the preparation, and I, I was I was thinking back to your you're talking about the the monster method of mm-hmm, raising yeah. semitones to create tension, and it sort of occurred to me that this must be the you know the the sort of evolution of that idea in that actually if you want to kind of keep the tension of a semitone but do it in a more sort of you know more interesting way but not so on the nose of just keep taking things up a semitone each time this could be the way to do it that's exactly right you can you can create the uh, impression of pulsing tension rather than rising tension and you can stay on the same chord 
which does project a certain sense of confidence and coolness if it's not rising and rising and rising. It's just a solid chord, but then you get the rising effect, yeah. I think the other thing about it is, and this is something that the technique and approach that Barry takes through the films, is that when you take such a short figure of just four notes and repeat it over and over and over, it creates two things. It creates a relentless feel. Uh, and in terms of James Bond is on a mission nothing's going to get in his way, nothing's going to stop him. And you're echoing that in the music with a relentless line that's just never-ending or, or kind of feels like it's never-ending. And the other part to it, I think, as well, when you've got the semitones, is that it, there's a tension with that as well. It, it It feels dangerous because the semitone is the most difficult sound for us to listen to and I, I thought we might talk a little bit more about the semitone and we know that when we're growing up in and learning music you're told that the two notes right next to each other if you play them that's that's bad news you know if you're sitting in an orchestra and you're playing a c and the person next to you is playing a c sharp by accident which is a semitone apart and you play them at the same time it's pretty much the most horrible sound uh, that you can imagine in music and yet Barry actually kind of really builds a whole kind of genre of sound out of the semitone and the the sharpened seventh which is a semitone split by an octave doesn't he? Exactly various ways to use the semitone in a way you could you could see that this was something that obviously appealed to him and fate stepped in and provided him with the perfect sort of genre to exploit this, this relationship that he has with the semitone, whether it's, as you say, as like a, a, a sharpened seventh or whether it's things that are right next to each other that create this tension. Yeah. Well, the the actual vamp, we, I mean, it's it's sort of been mentioned before in other places, and and I, there's a couple of things with the James Bond theme that we have to kind of mention. And, and for anyone listening to us, these are probably a couple of examples that you've heard a million times before. You know, in terms of influences for the James Bond theme, there's a few examples that get used often. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're going to have heard these. And I really want to touch on them briefly, just as a reminder, and also for anyone who maybe maybe hasn't heard them and then today jason you blew my mind with a new <laughs> one that i've never heard before and i've never heard it mentioned on bond groups and stuff so i'm really looking forward to to unleashing this one on our mm -hmm. listeners but before we do that let's just cover a couple of the uh, good old classics now there's the obvious Artie Shaw's Nightmare, which goes back, I'm pretty sure it was the 30s or 40s, this, this particular yeah, 30s, tune, yeah. 30s, yeah, and, you know, that's definitely that, that sort of vamp semitone device that's used some 30 years before uh, John Barry actually uses it, so let's hear a bit of that now. So yeah, there's there's that. There's the Artie Shaw's Nightmare, the famous one. There's also a couple of other examples of the John Barry 7 recordings. There's Beat Girl. Beat Girl. 
So, I mean, there's the obvious sort of surf guitar sound from the James Bond theme. There's some powerful low-end brass that we get, and also the high screaming trumpets, you know, very, very much the sound of the James Bond theme to come. And these examples, that one and the ones coming up, these, these are all sort of recorded circa around 1960, so a couple of years before the James Bond theme. Uh, interesting that, you know, John Barry is very much writing in that style a good couple of years beforehand. Another example uh, worth listening to is Black Stockings. Now, this one's written around about the same time, but it kind of has, to me, sort of the half vamp. So you kind of hear little elements of the that sort of semitone vamp. It doesn't quite give you the full thing, but there's definitely a vibe of John Barry's James Bond sound to come about this one, particularly the James Bond theme anyway. <laughs> Here comes a little hint of that. So yeah, that vamp is very much kind of hinted at there and something that he was obviously very keen on, John Barry, keen on using that as a compositional device. But then we come to Poor Me, which is something that he wrote for Adam Faith. Now you really do hear the vamp in its full form here. Now as a little side note, I learned something very interesting about this compositional period that John Barry went through where he was using a lot of these high plucked strings, all that little stuff on the violins. The string players used to get such sore fingers from doing that for John Barry that he used to have to have two sets of string players, one to do the rehearsals and then one to do the sessions, or anyway, to change over halfway through the sessions when their fingers were practically bleeding, they have to bring on substitutes. <laughs> Fascinating. I actually learned that. Recommend Don Zwiedemann and his team, their fabulous podcast, Double O Files. They've got a couple of whole episodes on John Barry really highly recommend you check them out I learned a lot myself from there so do go check that podcast out and, and these are all you know very often used as examples of influences for the James Bond theme and in fairness you also have to throw in a Monty Norman one as well and and some of the unused tracks on his soundtrack show that he was very much thinking of having the theme on a guitar long before Barry was even involved. And, you know, I think we have to kind of, in fairness to, to Monty Norman, that one often gets left off, but it's very much there. <laughs> ¶¶ 
But then, this, today, ladies and gentlemen, this is a new one for me. Now, maybe some of you will have heard of this one, but as I say, I've never heard anyone mention this one before. So, Jason, tell us what you served me up with today and how you came across it. As a fun uh, connection to what we were speaking about earlier, in 1959, a man known as one of the great arrangers of all time, Nelson Riddle, who gave us I've Got You Under My Skin, as recorded by Frank Sinatra, three years later did the theme to a television show of The Untouchables, the original uh, Elliot Ness TV series in America. And uh, the theme sounds like this. was that tv series about jason uh it was a it was a procedural drama you know it was kind of police related yeah they were they were they were, def- they were crime fighters i mean it's it's absolutely incredible actually there's lots of bits of that which kind of remind me of the james bond theme you've got the offbeat trombones you've definitely got a mm-hmm. bit of the the vamp in there i mean it makes you wonder is this something that John Barry, because at the end of the day, as a composer, you know, and I've heard David Arnold talk about this and stuff. Sometimes people are composing and it just sounds like something else. It's not, it's not deliberate. It's not a conspiracy. It's, it's just one of those things. Now I think there's probably two sides to that happening. Sometimes it's seeped into your subconscious where you've maybe heard something somewhere once and it could have been 20 years ago and you don't even know it's in the back of your mind but it just comes out in that creative process or there is just simply a coincidence that it's it's you've never heard that piece before ever but 
you know, we've only in the Western way of composing, there are only 12 semitones and there's not a completely limitless way that you can arrange those notes. So in the end, everything's going to sound like something if you really search hard enough. No, that's true. And you could also sort of take it off into the direction of saying that if that was considered a vamp underneath the melody, which would then just have been part of the arrangement, then even though it was chosen by Mr. Barry to be added to it, it is just considered part of the arrangement. It's not part of the composition, and therefore other versions of the song could go off in other radically different directions and not need it. It's not the important, because that's technically what defines an arrangement. It's not important and integral to the composition. You can remove it. In this particular case, over history now, over the, since from 1962 to the present day, I've heard more renditions of the James Bond theme than I can remember, and I think the version by the Scatolites, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but that's the only one I'm aware of that actually doesn't use the vamp. Even Monty Norman's own eventual recording of the version in the uh, first decade of this century on his Completing the Circle album uses the vamp. Yes. Yeah. It has kind of become integral to the song, even if it was intended to just be an arrangement and therefore interchangeable with any number of other vamps. It kind of has gotten married to it as as if it's part of the song. Okay, so one of those uh, obviously and fun little inserts that I'm recording after we recorded this podcast. Uh, so I was doing some research for the next podcast, the upcoming one on the legal side of the Jay's Bond theme, and I was reading Jeff Leonard's book, John Barry, A Life in Music, just to kind of get a little bit more back info on the whole story of how he came to get hold of the Bond theme. And there's a very interesting section in here, which Jeff has very kindly agreed for me to read out. Uh, and it just references the Untouchables, which I didn't know about before. So it says, Barry went on to say that he worked on the tune during a weekend without even seeing a rough cut of the film using the style of Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn and Nelson Riddle's Untouchables. Also somewhere in there was a reference to one of his own compositions, Bee's Knees, which had a similar plucked guitar intro. So there you go. I didn't, I'd never heard that Untouchables one before. And obviously it's a well-known one. So maybe a lot of you would have heard it. Certainly, I, I listen to lots of these sorts of podcasts and I've not heard that one referenced before in them. Uh, so it was an interesting one for me. But now that we know that Barry definitely did use it as an influence, you can really hear the influence from it. Uh, and the kind of ways it makes you think the James Bond theme is really a, a culmination of a variety of different influences brought together in one sound. So, yeah, interesting. But okay, let's move on again then now. There's another sort of element to this that I really want to talk about. It's the the use of jazz chords and the, the approach that John Barry brings to this arrangement that you're never going to, we're never going to get the chords that John Barry created, I don't think, from Monty Norman's composition. Because we've already established in the previous episode, you know, Monty Norman had much more of a sort of songwritery way of, of writing. So, you know, you take the kind of pop songs of the day in something like Let's Twist Again by Chubby Checker, 1962, and The Young Ones by Cliff Richard. And let's just have a quick listen to them. Come on, let's twist again. Like we did last summer. Yeah. Let's twist again. 
Both of those are pretty much, well, they are all straight ahead, major and minor chords. There's there's none of what I call when I think about John Barry's chords as the colouring in, you know, that you just get a straight triads pretty much. So for anyone listening, we know we're talking about a straightforward major chord and a straightforward minor chord. But right from the word go, John Barry's using much more complicated and colourful chords. But it it's what I call what's adding the colour. That's the, the jazz, I think that's the jazz influence, the, the real artists from that genre they have an, a more of an appreciation of different types of chords because to improvise over them and to create really interesting improvisations and melodies from it it's much more interesting to do that over the top of a more complicated chord sequence than it is over just a simple major minor basic chord progression that a lot of the pop songs had so you have to have a much deeper knowledge of jazz chords then. And John Barry certainly does that. No, I completely agree. We know that uh, historically studied over distance with Bill Russo, who was one of Stan Kenton's arrangers. So he did have a complete knowledge of, of jazz harmony and how it worked. And he even was someone who was incorporating this in his non-James Bond kind of music, you know, before he was involved to the level that he became. Have you heard the song The Wind and the Rain by um, Johnny DeLittle? I listened to it earlier. I have to confess I hadn't heard it before, but I did have a quick listen to it earlier. Yeah, he did an, uh, an arrangement of that for a film It's All Happening, which uh, came out in 1963. And he's actually in the film, in the studio, doing his thing. And uh, if you listen to the end of that, it's a pretty straight ahead example of a good early 60s pop tune. But uh, when you get to the end, you get the big note at the end and you get the dissonance coming in and you can hear that, you know, this is something that John Barry was interested in, even if it wasn't in a typical format that you'd hear it, such as a pop song. So, that, you know, it was almost, it does seem like it's destiny that he could be brought together to provide the soundtrack to a series of films where you could really use this. You could really get the power of that kind of arranging. I mean, even just the vamp, you know, we talk about the vamp as that sort of semitone movement, but actually the chords within it. So, I mean, if we were talking about the straight ahead chords, you would just have maybe E minor over these bars. But here, because of the way he puts the vamp on top of the chords, you've got E minor with a sharpened fifth. An E minor six, which is another sound altogether. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can really hear with those chords that they 
have a dark sound that is just not something that you associate with a pop song and a chart song and straight away you know he's writing a theme tune here and we go on to hear other theme tunes with lyrics coming up and they all tend to have within them these sort of really dark crunchy John Barry chords that aren't typical and aren't used in other pop songs uh, that are in the, the charting at the time talking in chords then that the last chord which is a real crunchy chord and it's it's known in the industry as the james bond chord the minor major nine mm. break it down for us as the composer tell us about that chord well so as you were saying about pop music often uses very straight ahead chords that is generally something where you've got a chord that is probably based in two thirds you've got a note like this and then you've got another third and another third. Those are considered, you know, relatively consonant, whether you end up with a major chord or a minor chord. When you want to extend chords upward to produce other feelings, other emotions and tensions, you add things that aren't as agreeable to the normal mm. first time you kind of hear something. And depending on how you arrange them, you'll get different effects. And so the uh, James Bond chord is a minor chord, but it also features this major seven that we were talking about, which is basically a semitone upside down. And then you've also got a ninth on top of that. So you've got a pretty wide span of dissonance, which is placed between a bunch of other intervals to get this powerful sort of wall of what we now consider to be spy-like intrigue. You see, what I find really fascinating about that chord is it, it really does highlight someone who is a master of chords because in my limited little bit of composition that I've done, I found with this chord, because I, I wanted to use it because I'm a Bond fan and I just wanted to use it, it's actually a really hard chord to treat in a composition, isn't it? It's it's very hard to put it into a sequence because it's it's hard to approach it because it just jars out at you when you use it and then actually moving away from it as well is quite hard, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's a reason it is where it is in the song. That's another sign yes. of, of somebody who's very sensitive with how to use dissonance and where to use it. So it's the last chord and it's a last chord kind of last chord, if you permit my yeah. bad use of the English language. But, you know, saving it allows it to have the power it has and to ring out. It is the full stop at the end of the sentence. Yeah, and, and I'm not constituting you here, but it, it, it also has a question mark feel about that chord as well. It's Oh, sure, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's unresolved, isn't it? It's a chord that mm -hmm. you, you can't, you know, most chords, if you have a tension chord, you resolve it. You know, you've got that seventh, that leading note in music, which always wants to rise to the tonic. So if you're playing in the key of E, E minor, and you add that, that sharpened seventh, that leading note, it wants to resolve to there. So if you don't do that, it just leaves you hanging. And then for added tension, add in the ninth, And it's a tension chord that never gets resolved. 
Which is good because for a spy, <laughs> that lack of resolution is edgy and it keeps you on your edge of your seat. So if you're if you're wanting to compose something that's going to create tension to, especially you know if if John Barry season down to write a James Bond theme, which is about to go into a film, you know originally was he was writing it to go in the the opening titles, you know you straight away at the end of it you're thinking oh you know this is this is danger. This is not going to definitely turn out okay. And it also speaks really well to the character of James Bond and who he was to become as well, because just before that, you get the sort of preparation for the last chord. Which is kind of like a series of kind of jazzy fanfares, almost like a hero would get. Heroes, you know, from Robin Hood onward in film, got fanfares. And this, you could almost hear as a fanfare. Mm. But then you get the chord at the end saying, but it's not a Superman kind of ending. It's a, yeah, dark, complicated character kind of ending. Absolutely. Well, one thing that we haven't talked about yet, and I think we're sort of coming to the end of how much we can absolutely dissect the James Bond theme into its, <laughs> down to its barest bones. We talked a little bit about speed earlier on, but I want to talk about the feel within the speed, because there's a very unusual thing that happens in the James Bond theme where you've got such a fusion or such a, a mixture of two completely contrasting styles. And it's normally, I think it's quite difficult to treat these two different styles of the guitar theme section, which is a straight section with the swing middle section and the transition between the two. It's quite unusual in the middle of a piece to check like a three minute or two minute even track to mix it up like this and for it to work so successfully. And they really are very, very different vibes. You know, you've the first section everything kind of really feels on the front foot and edgy and you know Vic Flick said that he played slightly ahead of the beat to kind of give it a, a sort of urgency mm. um, but then you switch in the middle section to where everything plays on that backbeat even though the tempo doesn't drop when the brass are playing da 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 you it kind of has that behind the beat feel to it as well I don't know if uh, if that was another bit of musical sensitivity saying to sustain the power of, of, like you were saying, the first section and the way it is almost slightly ahead of the beat. It's very driving forward to sort of have something that swings in the middle is something that then gives you a huge break from that section. So then it can come back again, almost like you, you're hearing it for the first time. It would be very hard to sustain that over yeah. you know several minutes and have it constantly retain the same as you say, spooky, exotic effect that it has. So, yeah. You know, there's a there's a switch, really, from that guitar thing, which is very much four in the floor, down, 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 where you get the pulse on every beat, to really the weight of the beat changes in the middle section of that swing, where you get the, the beat on the two and four, and that's very much synonymous with the swing sound, uh, where you get that sort of real backbeat two and four feel and it's just so key to that middle section and you know one of the things that when you get a band that's playing together and is really really tight with a fantastic chemistry that sort of two and four feel just gets tighter and tighter and tighter the more that everybody kind of playing together top musicians but those that are interacting with each other regularly that just gets 
tighter all the time uh, and I think that the John Barry 7 and I'm sure that the other musicians brought in were you know used to playing with each other regularly and you really hear the benefits of that chemistry really coming together in this yeah well that style of music was coming out of an era where it was certainly preeminent and so yeah you had people who played together all the time as well so you had a certain style of music yes you had musicians who were great and you had musicians who were really used to playing and recording together constantly and yeah. as as you know with your own band that produces a sort of a bond that exists on a bit of a subatomic level sometimes doesn't mm. it when you have that kind of experience of people bonding on that level Pardon the pun. Good pun as well with the bonding, but uh, Thanks. <laughs> no, but it is true. It is true, and and you're right, and and that comes from working together a lot and understanding what each, each other's going to do. A little bit like a, a sporting team that play together all the time. You know, you know where they're going to each other are going to be on the pitch, and the interaction between people and knowing how someone's going to interpret something. You know what each other are going to do and how that kind of all gels together and. A band that's really cooking and really playing well together is one that plays all the time together as they know what mm -hmm. each other's going to do. It's absolutely amazing that such a short piece of two minutes has got so many mineable qualities from within it. It just really speaks of what an absolute work of genius it is that you are able to keep going back and using different parts of it in different ways. There have been enough series now where uh, the next iteration of it arrives and they decide to do a new theme, a new take on the theme. I don't think that's going to happen with the James Bond series. Like It is one of the integral, it's now turned into almost like part of the glue that holds the character to the spirit of who James Bond is because mm. the actor changes, obviously. Now, I don't think they're going to get rid of the theme anytime soon. Well, Jason, I think we've just about covered the James Bond theme today in terms of the composition, arrangement, orchestration and all the factors in between. And it's it's been really good, actually. I've really enjoyed getting Steve's opinion on the guitar stuff and all his insight on that. And then, yeah, you really blew my mind with that piece of music. It blew my mind back in, in, in the late 80s, I think, when I first picked it up in a charity shop. Like, when I was getting into my Nelson Ripple things, I couldn't believe it, you yeah. know? Well, we'll leave it there, and we'll look forward to you coming and joining us on the other episode, uh, looking at the battle for the James Bond theme ownership. Cheers, Jason. Thanks a lot. Cheers. See you all soon.